Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Paula Newton in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you need to know. The Iranian election, a hardliner set to win after rivals are actually disqualified. A travel takeoff, the EU set to lift restrictions on visitors from 14 countries now, and doses delivered. China set to administer a billion COVID vaccines by the weekend. It's Friday, let's make a move. And a warm welcome to everyone. Once again, uh, good to have you here live from the New York Stock Exchange on this last trading day of the week. And it's going to be an interesting one. Buckle up, people. That's what I'm telling you. We are now bracing for an early session sell-off for U.S. stocks. You see it there amid new uncertainty over when the Fed will begin raising interest rates. Now, here's what's interesting. The president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, James Bullard, said in an interview today that the Fed could begin hiking rates as soon as the as next year now an earlier timetable than the markets had been expecting europe as we watched the markets actually did turn lower as well on the news meantime to asia where it's been a mixed day with commodity weakness helping pressure uh, on helping with that pressure on mining shares the japanese central bank meantime announcing that it's keeping its pandemic stimulus in place for another six months. Perhaps that's not a surprise as COVID restrictions continue to weigh on that country's economic performance. And we will be following the market action for you throughout the next hour here on First Move. A lot of action, especially on this trading day, where it's also triple witching. But first, we want to get right to those main drivers. Iranians are voting For president, they will pick the successor to Hassan Rouhani as he finishes his second and final term. Now, the election comes as Iran negotiates with the United States and European countries to try and revive that all-important 2015 nuclear deal. Our Fred Plaikin is there for us in Tehran. So good to have you there, Fred, on the ground. Now, this election um, is not really a test for moderates anymore, is it? They've already been defeated, in a sense, in Iran. I've been reading about how... This whole process has been quite dispiriting for many Iranians. What have you been hearing from them on the ground? Well, there certainly are some people who are quite uh, disillusioned, but I think also for the moderates and especially those who in the past supported Hassan Rouhani, I do think, uh, Paula, that there, there is a good deal of, uh, uh, of issues with the politics of the past couple of years. There's a lot of people who are quite disappointed in Hassan Rouhani, who are disappointed in the economic situation, especially in this country. Of course, all that given the fact that uh, he is facing those tough sanctions that President Trump put in place. So uh, with this election coming, the main front runner is obviously Ibrahim Raisi, who is very much a conservative. Um, there is a moderate challenger called Abdul Nasser Hemati, but there's not many people who believe that he might have a chance, although our crew spoke to him and he said he might be able to, or he believes he might be able to pull off a last minute surprise. 
there were people who believed that the turnout would be quite low at this election. I want to show you, though, you can see here at the uh, polling station that we're at right now, which is actually one of the main ones in Tehran, that there are actually people coming in. They are casting their ballots. We have been at three polling stations here in Tehran so far, and all of them did have a decent amount of people here. I wouldn't say that it's, uh, it's as many as we saw in 2017, also covering that election back then when Hassan Rouhani got re-elected. There certainly were people who were turning out. Um, it really looks as though you're absolutely right. There is going to be a turn to more conservative politics here in this country. However, it also is the case that that is not going to affect the negotiations about the Iran nuclear uh, uh, agreement because that's something where Iran's supreme leader has already said that he supports those negotiations to get that agreement back on track, Paula. Yeah, it's fascinating, Fred, just to kind of see you there at a polling station. We know that the reflex for Iranians is to be politically involved, and it's been interesting to read about what might be a little bit of apathy. But as you so rightly pointed out, let's wait to see what happens today. I want to get back to that economic situation and the lifting of the sanctions, which really is is really dampening the effect of this right now. Do they believe that with the new Biden administration, the fact that they were trying to jumpstart these nuclear talks, that this will pull through and ultimately help what is a struggling economy? Well, it certainly looks as though right now, as far as the negotiations to revive the nuclear agreement, that there is still pretty good hope that it will be pulled through. I think the thing that the negotiators in Vienna, or when they are in Vienna, are trying to achieve is they're trying to get the nuclear agreement back on track um, before the new administration takes office. So that would be in August. So the election is obviously today, there's gonna to be a new incoming administration, but they do wanna get uh, try and get the US back into the nuclear agreement and get Iran back into full compliance. Now the Iranians of course hope that that would mean windfall economic benefits for them. First and foremost, of course, uh, as we know, Paula, that means selling oil, that means selling gas. That's the, that's the first sort of immediate thing where they think that they can get some reprieve. But then also, if you speak to a lot of people, we can look at some more people voting while I say this. Um, if you speak to people here in this country, they obviously say they want to do business again. You know, Iran is actually a country with a lot of people who are very good at doing business internationally. And something that we actually saw when the nuclear agreement first came into place, there were Iranians who were living abroad, who were coming back, who were starting businesses here. They all want to get back to that. They want to be in the international financial system again. They want to be on uh, electronic payment systems again. That's what the Iranians want. Now, there are, of course, certain sticking points as to getting the, the nuclear agreement back on track. The Iranians, for instance, want more sanctions lifted, it seems, than the U.S. right now is willing to give. Those are the things they want to sort out. But by and large, um, you do feel, and you speak to people here, obviously, right now the sanctions are crushing, and they do hope that if there is an agreement uh, with the U.S. and other countries to revive that nuclear agreement, that they could get business back on track and hopefully get the country's back on, the economy back on track as well, Paula. Yeah, a lot of expectations riding, not just on this election, but as you've been saying, on that all-important deal. Uh, Fred, so good to have you there again. We will continue to follow Fred's updates throughout today and on the weekend right here on CNN. Now, some good news for Americans hoping to travel to Europe this summer. The EU plans to lift travel restrictions for visitors from 14 countries. And yes, that includes the United States. Anna Stewart joins us now. And you've been following all of this, Anna, as the announcements come out in the last few hours. But, you know, uncork all of this for us, help us unpack it. There seem to be some limitations here. Yeah, Paula, before you pack your bags for Mykonos or Provence or Venice, you can only dream, right? There are a few things to think about. Uh, the first one is, although American uh, tourists are now allowed into the EU in terms of they've said it's non-essential travel is now allowed, you can go. 
fully vaccinated travellers may not need any kind of test at all. However, each nation within the EU actually gets to decide their own rules. So you will need to check what the entry requirements are. Some will need a PCR test, some won't. Of course, obviously, all of that can change as well. On top of that, one big limitation for airlines particularly is this is a great move, a significant milestone. But actually, it's only really one-way traffic because currently Europeans can't holiday in the U.S. because the U.S. travel ban is still in place. So great news for airlines halfway there to a recovery, but not fully there. And you know what? Europe needs tourists. It's such a big part of the European economy. American tourists particularly, they spend more other than China than any other tourists in the world. They normally account for around 5% of international arrivals. So this is certainly a, a moment to celebrate for travel and tourism. But as you say, a few restrictions still in place there. Yeah, quite a few. And then the whole issue of how do you prove that you've been vaccinated? Uh, and, and by the way, thank you very much because my daughter hasn't been nagging me enough with pictures of Europe and where <laughs> we're supposed to be going uh, in, in the months to come. I really want to get to the UK here. Uh, this is a point of huge angst uh, for uh, the UK in terms of where they are allowed to go, but also any kind of reciprocal permission that the UK will be giving uh, for people to enter their country. And UK airlines are particularly feeling this today. They're feeling left behind because the UK is not included on Europe's new nice whitelist like the United States of America. It's also not welcoming tourists from the US either. So this is a big problem, particularly for UK airlines who really rely on the transatlantic route. Virgin Atlantic is one airline. Actually, 70% of their network is that transatlantic route. So they're really calling for the government to make a change on this. Uh, Ryanair boss and the head of a big airport group in the UK are actually taking the government to court mounting a legal challenge regarding the ever-changing travel policy here in the UK. But Paula, the problem is the Delta variant really does have a hold in the UK. We've just had new data released that shows it accounts for 99% of new cases. And of course, the country is not fully vaccinated yet. Paula? Yeah, you do feel as if perhaps some of these countries are getting ahead of themselves when you see what's going on in the UK with that all-important Delta variant. Anna Stewart, have a great weekend. It was good to see you here this week. And I'll catch you next week. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Now, China's coronavirus vaccination campaign is now in full swing. By this weekend, it's expected to reach 1 billion, with a B, doses administered. And uh, that's about 40% of the shots given out so far right around the world. Ivan Watson is live uh, with me here in Hong Kong. Ivan, I appreciate you keeping on top of this because, I mean, of course, it's important for the whole world in terms of when China gets fully vaccinated. Uh, in terms of, pers- you know, in real terms, the number seem- seems huge. But where are we in terms of percentage of the population vaccinated? Yeah, I, I think that we- we've heard from a government advisor who has projected that perhaps 40 percent of the population in China, it's 1.4 billion people, could be vaccinated by the end of June. I think what we see in this surge of vaccinations, where we're expecting up to a billion doses uh, by the end of this week administered, is an example of how China's kind of top-down management of, of its healthcare system kind of 
can deliver. Uh, sure, China stumbled where the coronavirus was, was first detected in the city of Wuhan at the end of 2019 and, and really struggled initially. But we've seen that when China, when the central government, uh, the one party system puts its mind to it, it can get results. It can lock down entire cities and, and begin mass testing of, of millions of people within a matter of days. And in this case, you had China where at the end of March, it only had about a million doses administered. That's three months ago. Now China is putting shots into the arm to the tune of around 20 million doses a day. That's the figure officially from last Tuesday. So it has just ramped up its vaccination uh, program uh, at, a, a dr- at a dramatic scale. And we're seeing the end results of this, where I think uh, statistically around 40 percent of the, the COVID-19 vaccination shots globally have been administered in China. Paula. Yeah, and you make such a good point about the way they can surge the testing because they've been surging the vaccines, which we've covered here on First Move because they've had those outbreaks in port cities uh, in China, and it's been important for them to surge the vaccine to those areas. Uh, Ivan Watson, have a great weekend. Thanks for staying up late for us there in Hong Kong. Appreciate it. These are the stories making the headlines meantime right around the world. Taiwan has just received a new shipment of 240,000 Moderna COVID-19 vaccine doses. The island is battling to contain a spike in cases but has, in fact, one of the lowest vaccination rates in the world. Now, a new vaccine developed right in Taiwan could be a game changer. CNN's Will Ripley has more in this exclusive report. At Metagen Vaccine Biologics Corporation. You must be so busy right now. Yeah, sure. You can feel energy in the air. This company is the first in Taiwan to submit its COVID-19 vaccine to government health officials. For emergency use authorization. Taiwan's president, Tsai Ing-wen, hopes locally made vaccines will be ready for the public by late next month. Taiwan is battling its most severe outbreak of the pandemic. The government is struggling to get enough foreign vaccines in a region where China often calls the shots. Cross-strait tensions are high. Taipei accuses Beijing of blocking access to foreign vaccines, a claim China denies. That makes the work happening here crucial. This is the room where they package and label box after box of these single-dose syringes. Each box contains 100 of these, and the company says they can scale up production and eventually produce 40 to 50 million doses a year. On one hand, I feel uh, exciting that our vaccine is coming. But on the other hand, I I also feel very sad. Even one month earlier, maybe we are able to save more people's lives. This is Medigen CEO Charles Chen's first interview since his company applied for emergency use authorization. What would you say to people here in Taiwan who might be reluctant to take a domestically produced vaccine? The ones, the data and the result is, is transparent and convincing. I think people well, very much uh, them being convinced. Chen says that data shows their vaccine is safe. It produces antibodies in 99.8% of patients. What they don't know is the efficacy rate. Taiwan had almost no active cases until just over a month ago. How do you develop a vaccine when you don't have active cases? Yeah, this is a 
difficult question. Overseas Business Development Director Paul Torkehagen says Metagen just finished phase two clinical trials. So what we did was we designed a really, really large phase two. Usually a phase two is about a few hundred people. Our phase two was 3,800 participants. So we wanted a very large amount of safety data. Since you don't know efficacy, is it too soon to get emergency use and start vaccinating people? What's the consequence of not vaccinating and being not protected? Will you be getting your vaccine, your company's vaccine, yes. when it's available? Yes. No question. No question. But there are questions. How effective is Taiwan's vaccine? Here, it's a matter of life or death. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. North Korea's leader is admitting the country is suffering from food shortages. Now, the state news agency says Kim Jong-un opened an important political meeting saying the nation's food supplies were strained and the situation was getting, quote, tense. He blamed the pandemic and last year's typhoons. Israel plans to send about one million coronavirus vaccine doses to the Palestinian Authority. Now, the stock of Pfizer vaccines was set to expire soon. Under the deal, a shipment of vaccines intended for the Palestinian Authority later in the year will be delivered to Israel instead. Still to come here on First Move, uh, India's Tata Consultancy Group launches a drive to get employees vaccinated amid a deadly COVID-19 wave and... Wall Street takes aim at work from home. Morgan Stanley joins the chorus of banks that want people back in the office. And welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange, where the Wall Street bulls are bracing for an early session sell-off. Now, we are off our future lows there, but still, the Dow on track for its worst weekly performance since January amid blockbuster comments from St. Louis Fed President James Bullard. Uh, in a new interview, he says he expects the Fed to begin hiking rates next year. The Fed's latest dot plot. Yes, folks, we are back to the dot plot. Out earlier this week, doesn't see rates rising until 2023. So these comments come as an unpleasant shock for investors, particularly in the rate-sensitive tech sector. There will be much more to come on this, I assure you. Now, in the meantime, stocks in the news today include German biotech firm CureVac. They are bouncing in European trading after a 40% plunge yesterday. CureVac says it is not giving up on its COVID vaccine despite disappointing results in late stage trials. Now, for the past two months, I don't have to remind you, India has been in the grips of a devastating second wave of COVID-19. Reported cases have now passed 29 million That's more than any other country except the United States. But as the U.S. powers ahead with vaccinations, India is falling behind. Less than one in 20 adults has been fully vaccinated, even though India, I have to remind everyone here, is a key vaccine supplier to the rest of the world. In fact, developed nations received vaccine doses from India. Now, some companies are trying to change all of this. They're taking matters into their own hands. Tata Consulting Services is an IT giant with almost half a million employees. It is set up at over 100 vaccination centers right across the country in a major drive to inoculate its workforce. Joining me now is Anganapati Subramani Um. He is Chief Operating Officer of Tata Consultancy Services. And apparently I have permission to call you uh, NGS. Thanks so much for joining us. 
I appreciate your time here because we have been so keen to see how all of this is unfolding now in India. And to start with COVID, of course, how has your staff been coping? Has there been substantial progress on getting at least your employees and their families vaccinated now that you guys have taken matters into your own hands and been open these vaccination centers? Good morning, Paula. Thank you for having me here. Yes, um, we prioritized employee safety um, about 15 months ago. And um, currently, you know, we have um, taken up a vaccination drive. We call it the TCS Vaccination League. And as we speak, uh, about 50% of our employees have been vaccinated. But um, the, the problem that we have is uh, we have to vaccinate all the employees and their dependents. That's uh, roughly about 1.2 million people that we'll have to cover. We have covered about uh, 250,000 of our employees and their dependents so far. So we have quite some distance to go. And, and I hear you because it's not enough to obviously vaccinate the employees. You have to vaccinate all of their families. And, and I know that your company is invested in the communities in which your your employees live. You want to make sure that they're they're all healthy uh, and in good shape. How difficult has it been to actually get the doses? Because as we were just outlining, it's one thing to actually get the system in place, but doses have been in scarce supply. Um, see, we, in India, we have a problem of scale, uh, for sure. Um, vaccines are getting produced. The government is procuring about 75% of them, and then uh, the 25% of the vaccines produced are available for private hospitals with whom we have tie-ups uh, established. So there is only so much that we have um, We have as supplies, and we need to um, uh, work with the private hospitals and ensure that we set up our COVID vaccination centers based on the availability of vaccines. And it's a, um, an operations uh, research problem as well because one has to really look at the, the, the first dose and then we'll have to time the availability of the vaccines for the second dose. And so, you know, we are putting some of our technology skills to use to really plan this out very well. Uh, are you disappointed that this, the government has done what they can do, I guess, so far? Are you disappointed that the private sector, uh, private sector has to come in here? Or do you think it's expected at this point? No, I think it's, uh, we'll have to play our role because there's only so much uh, that the government can do. And uh, we have a huge population. There are uh, so many people uh, who are still, you know, um, living in the below the poverty line. The government has to take care of a lot of them. Um, so, you know, I think the private sector has to play its role and I'm happy that the government has come up with the vaccination policy by which, you know, um, it's open to everybody. Everybody centrally registers it, but then one can go and pay privately and then get them vaccinated or go to the government vaccination centers and get them free. Okay, so perhaps you don't want to be dragged into this debate, but I'm going to drag you into this debate. This whole work from home, we're going to highlight on the show what's going on here in the United States in the next few minutes. But I want to hear from you. I know that you guys had to transition rapidly to having so many more people work from home. When you can imagine if it's a challenge here in the United States and in Europe, what a challenge that was in India. Where are you now in terms of trying is a work from home a new normal, a new reality for your company? Um, I think, you know, the, some form of hybrid will be the new normal. We quickly launched um, secure borderless workspaces, as we called it, um, so that people and um, 
can connect to our systems, our customer systems seamlessly and work safely. As we speak, about 97% of our employees are working remotely. And in fact, we enabled the remote access to them in weeks, um, about 15 months ago. Over these 15 months, there have been a lot of learning, uh, for sure. And um, uh, talent has become a fungible asset, number one. Technology services work has become location independent. Our employees are happy, our customers are happy. We see some uh, distinct possibility and uh, that people, when they, are, when they are enabled with the right tools and uh, processes, they are able to be productive as well as energized with the right level of employee engagement. I think we have done our bit and um, which um, actually made us to announce a bold operating model, which we call it as 25 by 25, which essentially means that we believe that 25% of the workforce, if they are in the office, then we can make everybody productive. 100% of our employees can be productive. And it is sufficient if employees can come to offices about 25% of their time with a certain amount of flexibility. Then people can come two days a week or one week a month or otherwise, depending upon the client and project uh, requirements. Um, but overall, we believe that uh, the future is going to be something of a hybrid model because our employees felt that there is an answer finally to this work-life balance. While it has been a concept all along and it has left it to the individuals, now with secure borderless workspaces, they believe that they have found an answer which they would like to continue. So I don't have a lot of time left here though, but you're saying that the hybrid model you believe will work going forward and will actually add to productivity because it adds to wellness for your employees. I think the initial data that we have we are getting and it's um, quite uh, encouraging and we believe that you know overall there will be a productivity um, uh, opportunity which is definitely there. And uh, you, the most important thing is you got to have the right processes, right technologies, um, and the right security framework, all of which we have invested quite a bit as a part of our open, agile, collaborative, right. location-independent methodologies. Right. Okay, NGS, thank you so much. Chief Operating Officer of Tata Consultancy Services, I really want to thank you for being here uh, and to give us some insight into how businesses are coping uh, in India. Appreciate it. And we will be right back here on First Move with the opening bell. Welcome back to First Move. That was the opening bell here at the New York Stock Exchange and so much for a slow Friday. We have a sharply lower market, as you can see there, to start the tra trading day with the Dow now falling for a fifth straight session. Stocks pulling back amid concerns that the Fed will raise rates much sooner than expected. The president of the St. Louis of the St. Louis Federal Reserve, meantime, James Bullard, who is not currently, we have to say, a voting Fed member, nonetheless, says he expects the Fed to begin raising rates later next year. So that's the end of 2022 because the U.S. economy is recovering sooner than expected. Now, investors were expecting hikes to begin in 2023. They are also anticipating a cut in the Fed bond purchases that have helped inject liquidity 
into those markets. All of this to help contain inflation expectations. It is also, yes, it is a triple witching options expiration day here on Wall Street. Yes, which means no one's starting the weekend early here and lots more volatility than usual. Just what we needed, right? Uh, we are glad to have Randall Krosner here. He joins me now. He is a former U.S. Federal Reserve governor and currently a professor at the University of Chicago's Booth School of Business. And yes, we are glad to have you here to help us parse all of this. Look, we've had not 48 hours, but you know, close to to help parse these comments from Jay Powell and the Fed's assessment on where the data is taking us. You know, I happen to think that they were pretty clear, and yet the market's telling us otherwise. They are still looking for signs that this is not, to use words that he had used months ago, data dependent. What do you think at this point in time? So I very much agree. I think um, uh, Jay was was pretty clear uh, that uh, they are now going to start thinking about the possibility of of pulling back because we've had strong inflation prints, but they're not worried about inflation getting out of control, and um, and so they're not ready to move too too rapidly. Um, those when they put out this um, uh, their um, uh, their their statement, they also put out the infamous dot plots. Where each of the um, members of the, uh, the the Fed decision-making committee puts their forecast out of when the first rate increase is going to be, and I sometimes call those the renegade renegade dots because there really should be one big dot for Jay because uh, he's really the key decision maker, and then the renegades are kind of have different views here here and there, um, and I think listening to Jay means that. It's unlikely that you're going to have a rate increase before the end of 2022, even if some of the others might think that there would be. Yeah, and we made the case that Tim Bullard is a non-voting member and he is only one person. And yet it is more of a hawkish view. Before I get to things like interest rates and the yield curve, I do want to talk to you about commodities. It's interesting because the commodities this week, which were so hot just three days ago, we now see them pulling back a bit. What does that tell you? Well, you saw some of them come back a little bit earlier, like lumber, for example, had you know had this incredible rocket rise and then uh, a very rapid fall. I think people are becoming uh, realizing that yes, there are supply bottlenecks. Yes, um, there is a, a lot of demand right now, but I think some people were anticipating or like hoarding some of these things or storing them because they thought things would even go uh, prices would go even higher. They're realizing that it's going to be strong demand, but not astonishingly strong demand. So I think um, you're seeing a little bit of pullback in those because uh, there have been, I think, a bit of froth in some of those markets. Yeah, it, it's really been rubbernecking all week. You know, you had people talking about super cycles and all of a sudden by Wednesday and Thursday, as you said, it, it was a bit of a, a pullback, which would tend <laughs> to dampen. I know, which would tend to dampen, of course, these these crazy inflation expectations that we have had. Um, I, I want, do want to get, though, to this debate between monetary policy and fiscal policy. We may or may not have a deal in Congress on infrastructure. You know, we just talked on this show about the fact that Japan is not pulling back. Certainly the EU isn't pulling back in, in terms of fiscal measures. At this point in time, how much do you think the Fed is worried about that mix between monetary policy and fiscal policy? Well, certainly they look very carefully at what uh, fiscal policy is doing because we've had a very strong fiscal boost in the U.S., $3 trillion when the crisis first hit, another trillion last December, $2 trillion a couple months ago, and now $4 trillion, and I even saw a report that someone was, was pushing $6 trillion on the table. That's a lot of money. That's like 50% of, of GDP. And so the Fed worries that it could be a little, uh, a little too much 
all at all at once because they're giving extraordinary support to um, uh, on, in terms of monetary policy and if you have a lot of fiscal policy on top of that plus pent-up demand savings rates have been high in the u.s people have been able to go out and spend and people really want to go out and spend now that uh, we've had successful rollout of the vaccine and the success of the vaccine so i think they're a little bit worried about things going a little bit too much uh, a little bit too fast but uh, they still don't they still think they have inflation under control or at least certainly jay does yeah, and it is interesting what you say is that listen to what the Fed chair says when it comes to dot plots or what he's saying. And he's saying it will be data dependent. They continue to watch inflation. When we saw, at least earlier, I don't even know what's going on with the yield curve right now, but we did see a bit of a flattening. Does that tell you that this whole concept of inflation perhaps being transitory, being temporary, that that, that is still what the Fed believes that they believe that, look, it may look a certain way now, but we can be in a completely different picture in six months. I think that's exactly right. I think the Fed really believes what they're saying is that it will be transitory. And I think they think that it's more likely that it will be transitory if they can get people to believe them, because inflation expectations play such an important role. You know, whether people go in and ask for increases in, in wages have a lot to do with where they expect prices to be. And whether firms are willing to give them wage increases has a lot to do with whether they expect they can charge higher prices. So it's very much about the uh, set of inflation expectations that are there. The Fed, I think, has been pretty good so far in keeping those tamped down. But there's a risk they could move up a lot. You know, people haven't seen prices move up like this in decades. And so they could start to question the Fed's credibility. I don't think they've done that yet, but it's a risk. Yeah, I am old enough to remember inflation. And there is, it's not an exaggeration to say there is a generation of people who do not understand inflationary pressure in the market. And I think that's significant. The other thing that I like to look at is the value of the U.S. dollar. And I do think sometimes that can put not just the Fed in a bind, but other central bankers around the world. It has strengthened for really the first time in months uh, throughout this week. How closely do you think the Fed watches the U.S. dollar? So the Fed watches a whole bunch of um, a bunch of variables, and the dollar is certainly an important one of those. The key is that um, does is the move um, enormous? It's it's you know it's been a move, but I don't think it's an enormous move. And is it one that they understand what's driving it? And I think they understand that with uh, markets changing their expectations about when the Fed would make its first move, that would all other things be equal, strengthen the dollar. So I think they're watching it, but it's not like they target a particular level for, for the dollar. As long as there's not a disorderly move and they understand why it's moving as it is, I think they're comfortable with, uh, with the market setting the, the rates on the dollar. And I only got about 20 seconds left, but how would you how would you rate the Fed on communications this time around? It is definitely a, a different school of thought uh, with Jay Powell in the chair. I mean, it's, it's always tough because uh, they wanted to put the support out there last year, and I think it was exactly the right thing to do. And at some point, they have to start pulling back. They have to start pulling back the punch bowl. That's always going to cause a lot of volatility in the markets. But better to have some volatility now than an enormous amount down the line. Great. Randall, thanks so much. I can think of no one ready, re- better really to parse this with us. It has been a bit of a confusing week uh, for investors and business people alike. Uh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now, Lebanon was once known as a country that somehow managed to just get by, no matter the crisis. But after pandemic, wars, a crumbling economy, and so many other disasters, the problems are now piling up. And that now includes a gas and electricity shortage that, as Ben Wiedemann reports, has literally sapped people of energy. 
As if Lebanon didn't have enough problems already, along comes another, a petrol shortage. Suddenly the whole uh, country is, you know, destroyed within a couple of months and it's just too much to bear. Lebanon's currency has lost 90% of its value in less than two years. Inflation is soaring. A massive blast in the Beirut port killed more than 200 people last year. Coronavirus killed thousands more. And the country hasn't been able to form a proper government in almost a year. Taken all together, it's grim. We're going to hell. These long lines outside the gas stations are a manifestation of a much bigger problem of a government that's bankrupt, that's broke, that doesn't have enough hard currency to import fuel to keep the lights on. Also in short supply, fuel to run the country's decrepit power plants. The normal lengthy power outages are getting even longer. The electric grid is antiquated. Those who can afford it depend on private generators to make up for the difference. It's getting tougher. I have Lebanon's caretaker energy minister, Raymond Rajar, warns as bad as things are now, worse may be yet to come. The blackout will be a true blackout, not public electricity blackout. It will be a complete darkness. And I think this is, a, you know, it's a calamity. It's not a scenario that's livable. Iraq has reportedly promised to provide cut-rate fuel, but it hasn't arrived yet. And meanwhile, Lebanon's squabbling politicians do nothing to fix the country's many problems. So we are just buying time. Uh, we are kicking the can down the road without reforms, without a complete solution for the sector. And Lebanon is running out of time, fuel, and it seems everything else. Ben Whitman, CNN, Beirut. Now, could a Lego-inspired solution make EV battery charging as quick as filling your gas tank? Uh, that is take one out. Uh, pardon me. We have that coming up. Take one out. You just put the modular battery back in. We talk to the maker of modular batteries when we come back. Widespread adoption of electric vehicles will depend on making them more affordable and efficient. Now, one of the challenges is making it charging quicker for those batteries. A San Francisco-based startup called Ample says the solution is a Lego-like battery swapping system. The Ample battery is designed to fit any EV, anyone allowing you to swap in a fully charged battery in just minutes. Now, Ample says all of this can happen in mobile stations placed almost anywhere with no construction needed. Now, the company has just struck a partnership with Enios, the largest oil company in Japan. Khalid Hasuna is the CEO and co-founder of Ample. He joins me now live. Um, yeah, this is quite a concept. Uh, it's a plug-and-play sort of deal. Explain to us how this all works. Sorry, Khalid, I'm, I, 
I, I apologize. We actually can't hear you, unfortunately. We are having trouble with your audio. We'll see if we can rec- uh, reconnect to you. In the meantime, we are going to take a check of the markets here, which have continued um, their sell-off in recent moments. Now Dow dropping almost uh, 400 points, as you can see there. Now we will go to the fact that Wall Street seems to be wasting no time in getting its employees back into the office. Christine Romans explains why. As more people get vaccinated, we keep bringing more back. At Bank of America, one of the top banks on Wall Street, employees are already encouraged to get back to work in person. And if they're not already at their desks this summer, the company's CEO says they'll be there by the fall. The view is after Labor Day, our view is all the vaccinated teammates will be back and will be able to operate fairly normally. And we'll then start to make provisions for the other teammates as we move through the fall. Manhattan's financial industry is clearly in a rush to turn the page on this era of virtual work. If you work in New York and you work in Wall Street, you're probably going back to work soon. Goldman Sachs has already asked its employees to return to work this week. At Morgan Stanley, where some New York employees are also back at their desks, the bank's CEO, James Gorman, said Monday he'd be very disappointed if people aren't back in their Broadway office by Labor Day. If you can go to a restaurant in New York City, you can come into the office. And we want you in the office. J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon has long been pushing for return to work. Last month saying exclusively working from home doesn't work for young people and for those who want to hustle. New York-centric Wall Street banks are ripping the Band-Aid off and requiring employees to go back to work. One, that's for competitive reasons because they want to win. And winning is sometimes seeing customers face-to-face. Two would be the culture. You create culture by having people around each other. There's creative combustion. There's spontaneous interactions. There's mentorship. And third, there's additional safety in having people, you know, face-to-face in meetings as opposed to relying too much on remote communications, especially in a world with more cyber risk. The effects on New York's economy and morale could be vast. According to a March report from the state's comptroller, The city's security industry last year employed 179,000 people. More so than almost any other industry, Wall Street is synonymous with New York City. And there's no question that this back-to-work push by the leaders on Wall Street delivers a huge vote of confidence in New York, a city that at one point was the epicenter of this pandemic. But not everyone on Wall Street actually wants to go back to their desks. There's no doubt that there is a a bit of a divide here. Uh, Managers do want their employees to get back. Uh, They're worried about the culture. They're worried about uh, not collaborating. But I'm told that lower level employees are not really in any rush to get back to the office right now. Banking, the financial institutions uh, have a very command and control culture. And historically, they have been the ones that have been slowest uh, to adopt flexible workplace strategies. It may be about the culture they want to create, but I just don't know if it's going to be possible going forward. I honestly think they've got a rude awakening coming. Yeah, and our thanks to Christine Romans for that package. And I assure you, this debate will continue and we will have much more of First Move when we come back. All right, first move is back, and I'm hoping we can return to our conversation about EV batteries. Khaled Hasuna is the CEO and co-founder of Ample, and I'm hoping we can hear you as you were going to explain this whole concept of EV batteries, that quick charging, and it's Lego style, right? It's plug, play, drive. How does it work? (laughs) 
it's, it's very simple. The idea is that uh, we break the battery in small modular pieces, and what that means is that we can become vehicle agnostic. We can rearrange them to fit in different vehicles based on the space available, bigger, smaller batteries, but also makes our uh, robotics a lot cheaper and simpler, and that's what allows us to deploy it on a couple of parking spots, no construction, quick, cheap, and easy, which means we can scale a lot faster. You make it sound pretty quick and pretty easy. I'm sure the interchangeability, I know people looking at EV uh, for the first time, wanting to buy their first electric car, are, are worried about this. How long does it take to charge? Where do you find a station? You're saying this is going to be applicable uh, across all the brands? Correct. So, I mean, we have to work with the automakers so that the car is offered with the Ampere solution, which we're doing with five of the, of the largest automakers in the world at this stage. We'll be introducing models as needed. Initially, our focus on fleets. Uh, we want kind of to make a lot of cars move to electric quickly. So we're focusing on companies that can move 10 to 100,000 cars to electric very rapidly. But once the infrastructure is there, anyone should be able to use it. Yeah, we're watching the video of how this works right now. How long does it take and how much does it cost? I can tell you when I first looked at the cost, I know it's fast charging. I get that. And you have to pay for that. But it still seemed a little bit expensive. Well, so I think one thing we don't take into account when we think about charging um, is that it's not just the cost of electricity. It's building the infrastructure. That's where the real cost is, building uh, 350 kilowatts, which are half as fast as us, if, if not a third, uh, cost $2 million for six ports. So, so at some point, that we're going to make it back into the cost of charging. Most, m- most people are not able to plug in at home where they have a garage and a parking spot or can afford uh, to use slower charging. So in a way, if you add up all of the costs, as such as what's happening in, in Europe right now, when you really get to fast charging, even not as fast as, as what we're offering, you're two to three times as expensive as gas. And you have to say, fully de- de- uh, delivered, getting to your car, what is the cost? If you can be cheaper than gas day one, you can convince people to make the transition to, to electric. And that's what we're, we're aiming for. Yeah, I'll point out it's not that much cheaper than gasoline, especially when you think of, uh, of hybrid vehicles who, who are running on both, I know, a traditional uh, internal combustion engine, but, uh, but also the battery itself. I do want to talk about the sustainability of this. There has thankfully been a lot more attention to the sustainability of batteries uh, and, and what it actually costs. What is your concept of that? How is your company addressing that matter? Well, so a couple of things. First, if you can make a battery go twice as far, as many miles, uh, then you've just doubled your sustainability goal. So that's kind of number one, is that because we control how we charge these batteries, we can control how they're used, uh, we're able actually to get a lot more life out of them. But the second more important thing is that while they're being used in the transportation use case, instead of them being just deteriorating, we can use them for grid support. And that gives us kind of a double use of the battery, allowing us to get more usage out of it. You compound on that the fact that the moment it's easy to, uh, the moment you're done using it in the transportation use case, you can extract these batteries, plug them into a wall, and it immediately becomes static storage for second life and possibly third life. So in a way, just one of the major ways in which you can solve the sustainability challenge is by uh, uh, first making it very easy to get more use of out of the battery, but then also make it a lot easier to recycle after, after it's done. Yeah, and I know that's a key thing. I don't have a lot of time left, but this is becoming a very crowded space. Uh, why Ample and how strengthened do you think you are by your new partnership? 
Sure, sure. We're, we're looking at a, at a world in which there is a billion cars plus that are electric. That's kind of what we're hoping to accomplish over the next 20, 30 years. And that's not going to happen if the infrastructure you're, you're, you're deploying cannot become profitable in and of itself uh, or solve the use case that's needed. So our goal would be to be able to create infrastructure very, very rapidly, but do it profitably almost day one. Uh, anyway, that's why NEO's partnership is, is relevant, because that's their goal as well as an energy company, is that they can't kind of uh, depend on government subsidy forever. Um, and, and in order for us to be able to deploy rapidly, we need partners mm -hmm. who can help us accomplish that, and NEO's is one of those. Well, cer certainly continue uh, to watch this development. And as I said, uh, keen awareness on the part of uh, new adopters uh, of this technology in terms of where all that recharging capacity and that battery capacity is going. Thanks so much. Really appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, we're going to take one more look at the markets before we go. And yes, it's unfortunate, but U.S. stocks are continuing their sell-off. It's actually picking up. Uh, blue chips seeing the biggest losses. Investors, of course, reacting to those new comments from St. Louis uh, Fed President James Bullard, who now expects the Fed to begin raising rates really earlier. And we are talking, of course, that great debate, whether or not inflation is temporary and what rates will do in response. I can assure you it is going to be a very rocky day today on the market. Stay tuned to CNN. Becky Anderson is next with Connect the World. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 